Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a president. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next. rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. A very happy Monday to you. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. We got a lot of news to cover. And we're going to start with Israel. We've been doing that as much as we can since October 7th as that horrific assault against Israel. Every day goes by. We learn more and more every day. We're going to turn to our friends as we have so many times from CBN News who do a wonderful job of giving us a recap of what the last few hours have held. Have a listen. The U.S. says it's planning more attacks with Britain against Iranian-backed militias after carrying out dozens of airstrikes against targets in Syria and Iraq, as well as against the Houthis in Yemen, in response to the killing of three American military personnel in an attack on Tower 22 in Jordan last week. This was the beginning of our, of our response. There will be more steps. Some of those steps will be seen, some may not be seen, but there will be more action taken to respond to the death of the tragic death of the three brave U.S. service members. Conservatives have argued that the Biden team's weak retaliatory strikes have not worked so far, with more than 160 enemy attacks on U.S. bases or ships since mid-October. Still, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. will respond to further attacks while also issuing a warning to Iran. From the perspective of Tehran, if they chose to respond directly to the United States, they would be met with a swift and forceful response from us. Meanwhile, another Iranian proxy, Hezbollah, has been ramping up rocket attacks along Israel's northern border, and Israel has responded by targeting their forces and military capabilities. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari says since the beginning of the war in Gaza, 
Hezbollah aligned itself with Hamas. Hezbollah is trying to divert our attention from the war in Gaza, disrupting the life of Israeli residents of the north. The aggression and attacks carried out by Hezbollah are fully backed by Iran and are the service to the Iranian regime that wishes to harm Israel. Hagari says Israel is fighting intensely to reshape security and push Hezbollah back from the border, allowing Israelis to safely return home. According to the UN Security Council Resolution 1701, following the Second Lebanon War, the presence of armed Hezbollah operatives south of the Litani River is prohibited. Despite the UN resolution, Hezbollah turned southern Lebanon into its main stronghold. Meanwhile, the European Union's leading foreign policy diplomat, Joseph Borrell, is arguing that defunding the UN Relief and Works Agency would be dangerous because it would cut off aid, even as a video resurfaced recently showing Palestinian children at a school in East Jerusalem run by UNRWA bragging about wanting to murder Jews. And as Israeli revelations indicate, that UNRWA workers in Gaza participated in the October 7th massacre and kidnapping of hostages. All of this amid ongoing talks for a possible ceasefire and hostage agreement with Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel won't agree to a deal at all costs to free the hostages held in Gaza. He says Hamas battalions must be destroyed. The terrorist infrastructure cleared out and tunnels neutralized. Hamas seems ready to refuse the hostage release deal if Israel doesn't agree to stop the war and withdraw from Gaza. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. And in the midst of rising anti-Semitism, there's now a new movement called October 7th Truthers, which again is a publicity blitz to try to say that somehow what happened on October 7th was a false flag. Here's more from CBN's Dale Hurd. This is day 16 of your daily reminder that Israel, not Hamas, is responsible for the massacre of Israeli civilians on October 7, 2023. Called October 7th Truthers, this group believes Israel was behind the attack that killed 1,200 Israelis that fateful day. It entered the mainstream when an Oakland City employee blamed Israel for the attack during a city council meeting. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. This Israeli military helicopter footage has been used to claim that the IDF intentionally fired on its own citizens. And in the conspiracy forum on Reddit with 2 million members, a person writes, there is a 100% chance that Israel is behind all of this. It's not like they don't have a long track record of false flag terrorism. Another writes, the world is a stage run by the Sons of Zion. The October 7th massacre of Israelis by Hamas is one of the most well-documented crimes in history, live-streamed for the world to see. And yet October 7th denial is spreading. This is the ultimate fake news. Rabbi Abraham Cooper of the Simon Wiesenthal Center says anti-Semitism since October 7th has skyrocketed. And those who have not experienced it personally uh, all they have to do is go up on social media. It's pervasive. It's increasing. Social media is tailor-made for conspiracy theories. You can manipulate photos, videos, information to, to bend it to whatever your uh, reality is, including creating a, a flat earth, whatever it might be. 
Cooper said the Jewish community was already in crisis mode before October 7th. Now the Anti-Defamation League says Jews face a threat level unprecedented in modern history. In December, almost 200 Jewish organizations across the U.S. were targeted with swatting incidents, false reports to the police of shootings or bomb threats. This Alabama synagogue had to be evacuated during a Shabbat service because of a bomb threat. People are, are on edge. They're nervous, and we're going to continue to reassure them that it's safe to come to services. Even the anti-Semitism on college campuses is being called a false flag created by Jews. The website Gray Zone says it's a contrived campus anti-Semitism crisis. Cooper says no amount of evidence will change the minds of those who want to believe a conspiracy theory. The Nazis worked so hard to cover up their crimes and to erase evidence of the crimes. Hamas, they were live streaming it. We have people, they don't want to be confused by the facts. They don't want their worldview to be interrupted, even if it involves crimes against humanity and, and possible genocide. Dale Hurd, CBN News. Unbelievable. It really does call into account, does it not, that the social media platforms out there who are so concerned about misinformation and disinformation, our own government for that matter, will do whatever they can to stop the promulgation of this rabid anti-Semitism. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for those in authority. Pray for lasting peace in the Middle East, where we know that will come eventually through the Prince of Peace himself. Back after this. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Lai Qingde is 64 years old. He's the son of a coal miner. He's also a Harvard graduate in public health, and he is Taiwan's next president. He won a decisive victory on Saturday after millions of voters cast ballots in national elections. 24 hours after his win, a U.S. delegation sent by President Biden arrived in Taipei to congratulate him and everyone who'd taken part in what was a fair democratic contest. China isn't so pleased. It has in the past called Lai a dangerous separatist because he rejects China's claim on Taiwan. The good news is that China is expressing its displeasure in words and not threatening displays of missiles and warships as it has in the past. That may reflect a shift in tone generally to dial back the aggressive rhetoric we've heard over the past five years directed against the U.S. and its allies, including Taiwan. Because Lai won 40% of the vote, China claims he doesn't represent a majority of Taiwanese. But poll after poll shows that most people don't want to lose their democracy to a takeover by the Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan's relationship with China is far from settled, though. In the past, China has refused even to talk to the next president and his party. But William Lai hopes that this is a new chapter. And to reduce tension, China will at least come to the bargaining table. That news story is a fabulous way to set up our conversation with Bill Gertz, 
who is a national security security correspondent for The Washington Times, award-winning journalist, by the way, and he's been with The Times since 1985. He is the author of multiple best-selling books. He's got a fabulous podcast. I have a link to thegertzfile.com and The Washington Times so that you can learn more about Bill and read his columns for yourself, all of which are so keen and so insightful. So, Bill, we've got a lot of territory to cover. Let me start, if I can, with the elections in Taiwan. First and foremost, the warmest of welcomes, thrilled you're here. Always appreciate the gift of your time. But with the outcome of the Taiwanese election and with Lai winning, A, does that come as a surprise to anyone? And B, do we take comfort that China's displeasure was only in words or are they still lying in wait until they try to take back that sovereign nation? Oh, hi, Janet. Yeah, both very good questions. Uh, On the first, yeah, Taiwan is a democratic dagger pointed at the heart of Beijing. Um, China pulled out a lot of stops on the information warfare front to try and get the more pro-mainland nationalist party, the KMT, uh, to elect their candidate, and they failed to do that. And this was a resounding signal to Beijing that the Taiwanese people want nothing to do with Chinese communism. They want to become an independent free state, and that's kind of where they're going. Uh, The response from Beijing to the election of William Tsai has been relatively muted. Um, I imagine that they're working out uh, ways to do things. We've seen an uptick, a slight uptick, in their aggressive military operations around the island. That is sending aircraft and uh, warships uh, in doing exercises around the island. This This has been their uh, modus operandi since the Nancy Pelosi visit in August of 2022. Uh, And and this is all designed to be coercion, uh, to try and pressure uh, Taiwan. Uh, Beijing thinks that Taiwan is moving towards independence, formal independence, when in fact it is already independent. It's Mm. just not recognized uh, around the world as an independent state. And that's partly the U.S. fault. We took an ambiguous position back in 1979 when we de-recognized Taipei as the main government of China and recognized Beijing as the main government. Wow. Boy, do I appreciate your insight. And for people who are trying to pay attention globally to what's happening, this was, as you just underscored, such a resounding message, not only to China, but to the world that Taiwan wants liberty, freedom, and independence. They are an independent state. They want to remain an independent state. And the will of the people is the law of the land. At least that's a principle we theoretically put into operation here in the state. So it's so good to see that that was very much on the hearts and minds of people who voted in the Taiwanese election and that they're standing fast. I think it's also crucial because so often when we talk geopolitics, We think leadership. But what you're pointing out vis-a-vis this election is these are the Taiwanese people themselves saying, we don't want to be subsumed by the communist regime. We want to maintain our ongoing independence. And so I'm very, very grateful for that outcome. I'm, I'm an optimistic realist. I don't think, by the way, this will divert this communist giant from their stated and declared goal that they will take back Taiwan and make it part of communist China. It's just a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. Am I off on that? Uh, No, you're not. This is clearly the hottest spot in U.S.-China relations, has been for decades. I can remember 
talking about the Taiwan Strait when my uh, my first book on China came out, The China Threat, which was in 2000. So here we are 24 years later, and we're still talking about uh, Chinese pressure. Um, the really, I think the, the U.S. has to take a leadership role at some point and uh, really go back to the negotiating table with the Chinese and explain, look, the Taiwanese people do not want to be part of China. Uh, you claim the Chinese claim that Taiwan is part of China. Let's work something out here. Uh, first of all, the the Chinese formula, the Beijing formula, was something called uh, uh, one country, two systems, and we saw how poorly that worked out in Hong Kong. That was the same deal that the Beijing offered this former British colony, which is was a, a vibrant free economic zone city, basically. And they've basically crushed democracy in Hong Kong. There is mm -hmm. no such thing as uh, one country, two systems anymore. It's, it's one country and one system. They're imposing Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics. That's exactly what would happen with Taiwan. Uh, Xi Jinping has made that clear. He's, he's an ardent Marxist-Leninist. I thank you for your insight on that, and I'm glad we started with that story, Bill. When we come back, let's talk about an article you wrote recently about an uptick in spending and a retooling of their approach to the, through the CIA as regards the rising threat from China. Award-winning journalist Bill Gertz is with us, best-selling author. We're going to continue our conversation right after this. Visiting with Bill Gertz, national security correspondent for The Washington Times and best-selling author of multiple books. Again, Deceiving the Sky, one of the many books he's written, but it does a superb job of really letting you understand how well-thought, multi-layered, totally committed China is to global domination. And that book will really open your eyes. Deceiving the Sky, the title of that book is explained once you get inside the book. Bill explained in one of our past conversations where that comes from, but you'll have to read the book, and I strongly recommend it to you. So let me go to a piece that you wrote that said that the CIA apparently wants to double its spending to meet the China threat without even reading the article first. The headline was comforting to me because it goes to a question I often ask you. I hope you don't grow tired of my asking it, but I think it's the question that the common folk like me ask on a regular basis, which is, what are we doing to prepare for this increasing threat from communist China? And when the CIA wants to up its spending and retool its analysis and ops, that's encouraging to me. Tell me more. Uh, well, first off, uh, U.S. intelligence has a real spotty record in on the china threat and i've again i've covered this for at least two decades and i can remember going to uh, the defense intelligence agency and having the director tell me that china was not a threat and i was shocked and he said basically because they said they weren't a threat and, uh, <laughs> the cia also uh had had problems too i i wrote about many years ago i wrote a report that they did an internal assessment at CIA, and they determined that the CIA had missed critical military developments by the Chinese military, such as uh, new submarines. They built an entire new class of submarines in secret, 
And the the first time they saw it was when China published a photo of it. It was called the Yuan-class submarine. Uh, so there were a lot of those issues. And, of course, their hypersonic missiles, they did a little bit better on. But um, anyway, uh, and then, of course, back in 2010, they had one of uh, the worst disasters in the CIA's history. And that was when somehow, either through a uh, communications uh, failure uh, or uh, the betrayal by a, a Chinese spy, uh, uh, they lost all of their recruited agents in China, and I mean, it, was, mm. it was devastating. At a time when you know China really was the, the key threat, they had they were blind, deaf, and dumb on the China threat. Uh, two summers ago, Bill Burns, the CIA director, was asked about this and made the first public comments and said, "Yes, we're rebuilding our networks." And that set the Chinese off completely, and they started screaming, and they're they're engaged in a massive counterintelligence uh, effort now to try and prevent uh, foreign adversaries from spying on China. But uh, Burns uh, wrote recently in a, in a foreign affairs, the elite publication of the foreign policy establishment, that, yes, they're going to double their spending uh, uh, on China because they recognize that it's so important. So hopefully they'll continue to do that. Now, things happening in the Middle East might be forcing them to retool towards the Middle East as well. Uh, you know, the question remains, can they do both? And in my view, the, the main strategic threat to the United States that will require all of our energy and resources is communist China. And we need not to get distracted by uh, the war in the Middle East or the war in Ukraine. That's an astute observation on your part, which raises an interesting question, which is Sky News had a story not too long ago that asked the question, could China go to war with Iran? What's your take on that? Uh, well, China looks at Iran as kind of a proxy force in going after what China regards as the main threat, which is the United States. Mm -hmm. So uh, China's view of Iran is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they've been they've been bolstering Iran with weapons. A lot of the Iranian weapons and technology is coming from China covertly. Um, that's one thing the U.S. intelligence community hasn't publicly disclosed and they should. Uh, but, <clears throat> yeah. China would like nothing more than to see Iran go to uh, a full direct conflict with the United States because it would further China's strategic effort to further weaken the United States. They are desperate to knock down, weaken, and ultimately destroy the United States as part of their strategy to maintain and become uh, the dominant world power. Well, on that note, let me talk about another piece that you wrote, and you talk about political dysfunction at home emboldens adversaries. And that was a conversation that was heard on the Hill, and I'll ask you to flesh that out in a minute. But your headline says, China linking with Russia, Iran, and North Korea poses dangerous threat to U.S. former leaders warn. Operative word, former leaders. What was the panel, and what did they warn? Yeah, this was a hearing of the <clears throat> House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. This is a new bipartisan committee. I think they have 24 members uh, from both parties, uh, and they're focused laser-like on the China threat. 
the panel is headed by a young uh, congressman from Wisconsin, Republican, uh, Mike Gallagher, and he's been doing a tremendous job. And his most recent hearing, and he's had he's been very active and has a very good uh, presentation, and he's been doing a lot in the information sphere, which, again, it's the 21st century, and, and warfare is going to be dominated by information at, at this stage of, uh, of history. Let me stop and, you there. Uh, he's done. Let me stop. It only comes up coming up to a hard break. You know how this works. Bill, thank you and forgive me for having to interrupt you. But I think this is a crucial uh, article that you wrote. This was a very significant panel. And I think our listeners would like to know what some of their observations were. Bill Gertz is with us. This is a man who's been writing for The Washington Times as their national security correspondent since 1985. Picked up a lot of awards along the way and also continues to write best-selling books. Outstanding. I've got a link on my website to Deceiving the Sky, one of his many. Back after this. Ministry is never a solo effort. You know my voice because I'm on the radio every day. Look a little further and you'd see right into the homes of listeners just like you. Partial partners who give a monthly gift and make this ministry available. Become a member of the team today by becoming a partial partner. Call 877-JANET58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We always learn so much when Bill Gertz comes to join us. His keen insight is invaluable, not just in our time together, but in his work through the Washington Times, where he's the national security correspondent, and also the fact that I do believe that his clear-eyed perspective on evil in the world, and that's really what it is, good versus evil in oh so many cases, that he continues to be a clear voice, and we're so very grateful for his work, and I'm glad he's keeping at it. Also the author of multiple best-selling books, but I want to go back to an article that you wrote not too long ago. You talk about this dangerous alliance. Just imagine China linking up with Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So there was a panel on Capitol Hill, and the people who spoke there were both former um, executives in the administration, and they had something to say about what was going on. But first of all, and this comes right out of my question to you about how would China react to Iran. And basically you said, let them throw the punches. They're working against the the country that is our biggest threat, which is the United States. Well, if you go right down this list, Russia and North Korea and add to that Iran, the United States is in the crosshairs of every single one of those countries. So please continue breaking down this panel discussion on the Hill. Yeah, um, it's kind of the new axis of evil led by China, uh, including Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Um, the two testimonies were provided, and it was shockingly bipartisan. Yeah. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the, the Secretary of State <clears throat> under uh, Donald Trump, and Leon Panetta, who was uh, Secretary of Defense under Obama. And uh, basically, uh, uh, both of these gentlemen also led the CIA, so they understand the threat matrix and uh, were very strong in saying that uh, we are we are being challenged directly by communist China. Uh, Pompeo was very strong, and Panetta again uh, was also very strong in saying these are these are dire times, and we've really got to face up to the fact that we're we're dealing with a challenge like we've never seen before, and. It's not simply an economic or political or military intelligence. It's ideological. They, they recognize the ideology that China has set itself the goal to recreate the world 
under Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics. And the impediment to that is the uh, Judeo-Christian civilization and the systems that have been developed uh, for 2000 years. And China wants to do away with them. They want to control everything. They want the Chinese Communist Party, which is an atheist party at its core. They want that party to dominate the world. And not only do they want it, they firmly believe that historical materialism, which is a a key tenet of Marxism, Mm. is leading them and China is leading the world to this uh, atheistic uh, goal of of a world that will be controlled by a single dominant party, which has cost uh, tens of millions of lives. Wow. Again, such keen insight, Bill. So appreciate what you said. And I know that Secretary Pompeo talks with powerful eloquence about this idea of the Judeo-Christian ethic being such a a thorn in their side, if you will, to the communist regime. But help me figure out, you wrote this in the article, which I thought was great. You said linking global crises in Ukraine and the Middle East, among others, is really part of their anti-U.S. strategy. Help us figure out, to connect the dots, why what's going on in Ukraine and in the Middle East, both which the United States now are involved in, how that factors into the bigger picture of China and its anti-USA USA stance. Yeah, under Xi Jinping, who came to power in China in 2012, 2013, um, he has set himself the the purpose of what he calls a national rejuvenation. It's code for reestablishing Marxism-Leninism. That's the ideology that took power in the Soviet Union starting in 1917, uh, got overthrown in 1991, and now is being revived under Xi Jinping with uh, some some twists and turns of the ideology. But it's essentially the same. And in order for that ideology to succeed and this so-called rejuvenation, which he is advocating, uh, he's got to weaken and ultimately destroy the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States is leading, has led the world uh, since after World War II as the, the guiding light of freedom and democracy and prosperity and individual liberty. And these concepts, these values are vehemently opposed by the Chinese Communist Party. They are, again, a Marxist-Leninist party, and they use false uh, terms and language. They call their ideology democratic. Uh, Hmm. They call their view of of things uh, free and open, and they're anything but. As I point out in my book, uh, they are engaged in high-tech totalitarianism, the use of technology, and they're spreading it around the world. They have a strategy to do that. They, it's called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is couched as some type of development program in the developing world. Um, and my my view is that they they're go- going to make their use their economy to control the developing world, then the middle tier countries, and ultimately destroy the United States and emerge as the dominant hegemon. So in light of that, how do we square with what's going on economically in China right now? Because there's some ripples. Explain that to us. Well, their economy is is facing some serious problems. <clears throat> and the reason it's facing serious problems is because what happened uh, under Mao, who died in 1976, 
was that the country was on the brink of, of collapse. The, the communist policies of Mao, who's, who's been revitalized under Xi Jinping, is that the country was, was literally on the verge of collapse, and the West bailed it out, the U.S. in particular. The so-called China card that was played by Henry Kissinger as a hedge against the Soviet Union. But once the Soviet Union collapsed, there was never any reevaluation of uh, this pro-China policy, this pro-engagement policy with China. And so that has has gone on and on, and I've covered it extensively. And I, I can, as I said, the, the, the fundamental deception was that China wasn't a threat. And it even got to the point where during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, the Secretary of State at the time, Condoleezza Rice, said that we actually want a strong China. And nobody bothered to ask the next mm. question is why? Why? Yes. Why? Why are we supporting this communist system that has has brought uh, death and destruction to the Chinese people? And they thought that by engaging China, this would have a moderating influence and ultimately lead uh, to a non-communist, non-threatening China. And it was an utter failure. Yes. Policies that went on for 40 years of now being recognized by both Democrats and Republicans as having been a failure. So that was the ideological collapse. And by the way, it was it was a simplistic and vacuous idea initially. If we simply introduce the communist regime to the wonderful benefits of the free market and capitalist ideas, you know, with democratic characteristics, let me borrow from the Chinese descriptor right now, that somehow they would give up their wicked, wicked ways. It has had exactly the opposite. Now, if we've lost on the political theory, let's talk about the economic entanglement, which bothers me tremendously because money doesn't talk, it screams. So all of the conversation about moving to electric vehicles, if we're going to talk about lithium batteries, we're going to be entrenched. It wasn't it's not enough to own the cell phone business, but now they're going to get involved in the batteries for electric vehicles. How does that separate us economically from China? Doesn't that tie us even tighter at the hip? Yes, it does. And again, I have uh, strong suspicions and I think that history will have to uh, prove me right. But uh, I believe that there are pro China Marxist ideologues within the Democratic Party, within the Biden administration, who see climate change and who's, first of all, who see China as the ideological future. They may have been uh, part of the uh, new left radicals of the 60s and 70s who found their way into government, but they want to make China the ideological future. I, and this has even been reflected in some of the New York Times uh, columnist uh, Thomas Friedman at one point mm. uh, praised China, China's dictatorship, because basically they could get things done. Whereas we have a messy democracy where people battle over political issues. Uh, so that's kind of where I think a lot of the uh, leftists that have been gaining power and influence throughout the government have been pushing things uh, to the point where they don't want. Uh, uh, the United States to succeed. They want China to succeed. Uh, I know that sounds somewhat radical, but I don't think it is. And I think, again, some at some point in the future, I guarantee you, some whistleblower who was inside will come forward and reveal the, the real facts about what these policies were. Uh, yes. on, on the issue of climate change, um, the president has said that climate change is an existential threat. And yet there's no evidence for that. And annually, when the U.S. intelligence 
agencies go before Congress and give their annual threat assessment. There's never any explanation that climate change is an existential threat. The, the only threat that they say is that it could create uh, greater refugee flows, but there's no evidence of it being an existential threat. Yet this is the narrative that the left has been promoting. Uh, and it's a, uh, it's a narrative that says, we've got to control your lives so that we can protect the environment. And it's, uh, again, it's a very destructive and deceptive uh, ruse. Nothing but a ruse. I've said that about the climate change conversation for quite a long period of time. When we come back to your point, you wrote a piece at the beginning of the year that uh, revealed some of the statements that uh, President Xi said when he gave a speech uh, in on December 26th. That this is really not just the war of ideas. This is the war of ideas with absolute physical manifestations, geopolitically, economically, ideologically. Yes, but it's a panoply of issues all wrapped into one. I also want to talk to, if I've got time, about uh, domestic terrorism in the Pentagon. Bill Gertz is with us. I've always got more stories than time when Bill joins us. Because he's a prolific writer, he's an insightful writer, he's a man with discernment. Back after this. We're talking to Bill Gertz, national security correspondent for The Washington Times and best-selling author as well. Let me go back to a piece that you wrote at the front of the year because it was chilling in a word. You, you quoted a lot of what President Xi said, extolling Mao Zedong. And it was a speech apparently that he gave on the 26th and he extolled the virtues of Marx, saying he was a great Marxist, a great proletarian revolutionary strategist and theorist. He was a great patriot and a national hero in modern Chinese history and the core of the party's first generation of central leadership. He was a great man who led the Chinese people to change their destiny and the nation as a whole and a great internationalist who made significant contributions to the liberation of oppressed nations and the cause of human progress worldwide. John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. Did he bother to talk about the fact that under Mao and his policies, 40 to 80 million people died from starvation, persecution, prison labor, and mass executions? Or did he just skip over that part? Uh, yes, he definitely did. Um, this was, again, an unusual speech because the official view of Mao Zedong was that he was only partially right. And the reason was, as you mentioned, all the millions of people that died under government-caused famines, the uh, Great Leap Forward, where he ordered uh, people to melt down their pots and pans in a bid to try and build uh, backyard uh, steel furnaces. I mean, it was it was total insanity. Mm -hmm. And after he died in 76, uh, there was a bid by his wife and, and a, three others. It was called the Gang of Four. They tried to renew Mao's policy, and they were ousted by Deng Xiaoping, who took a more pragmatic approach, but still a Marxist-Leninist approach. He never abandoned the ideology. Uh, and that was what led to the great economic success that we see in China today. Now, Xi Jinping is reverting back to Mao's era. And he gave a speech on December 26th, which I wrote about in my column there, mm -hmm. and which he he hailed uh, Marxism-Leninism again. And it's a failed ideology. It doesn't work. Every place that it has been put into practice has been uh, death and destruction and economic dislocation. And yet it's almost a quasi-religious approach to it mm -hmm. because it's not based on, on facts. 
And this is what uh, Xi Jinping is doing right now, and that is causing the Chinese economy to start to decline. Uh, how serious those problems are, are difficult to discern because the Chinese Communist Party controls all of the statistics and facts and publicity and outcomes. So you can't really get a, a real sense on how bad it is. It could They could be on the verge of collapse. On the other hand, they have so much control over the system there that they could make things uh, prevent any kind of really uh, strong economic dislocation. But their real estate market is tanking. Uh, their youth unemployment employment is skyrocketing, which is a, a big problem for them. Uh, and the, uh, the political police and security apparatus are working overtime to tamp down and, and hide anything. If you write anything on social media saying the Chinese economy is uh, uh, in trouble, uh, the first thing that happens is that your social media account is eliminated and everything you reported on disappears. And other things happen, too. People are being arrested and imprisoned in order to tamp down any information. Wow. Unbelievable. So let me ask about a story that you wrote, too, that talks about the Pentagon, where they hosted a book talk on right-wing terrorism despite a report debunking, debunking extremists in the military. Well, I mean, I think we've all grown weary of the weaponization of the agencies. We've got a preponderance of evidence to this. I'm going to thank the House for their work on this. But we've seen it at the DOJ. We've seen it um, at uh, the Department of Education, HHS. The list goes on and on and on. But tell me about the Pentagon now. Yeah, they, this was a, uh internal meeting that was hosted by the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And it was on right-wing terrorism. And uh, it, tr it set off a lot of people in, in the building, in the Pentagon, who said, look, this is a false narrative trying to promote this false narrative of so-called extremists in the military. They've done numerous studies. Uh, the Pentagon did a study. There was a working group. And now a contractor called the Institute for Defense Analysis uh, they debunked this whole notion that the military is riddled with right-wing extremists, but yet the left, the political left within the Biden administration, is continuing to promote this. And the reason they're doing that, and this is going to be the subject of uh, my next podcast uh, coming out uh, in, the, in the very near future called Victory Over Communism. Mm. Uh, I'm going to look at this uh, ideal, this neo-Marxist push. Uh, inside the military, which is really having a corrosive and subversive impact on recruiting and retention. Uh, there was a recent hearing at the House on this, and they, uh, it was just devastating. They, they presented 100 pages of testimony from military personnel who said, listen, I'm getting out. I'm not going to be a, a politicized pawn or part of a social engineering campaign by neo-Marxists in the Biden administration. Wow. That is stunning. And in the meantime, there's a segue here. All of the conversation of the reauthorization, the NDAA, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, and the stuff that was in there. They're talking about right-wing extremists. What about the military paying for abortions? What about the drag queen shows on military bases? What about DEI that's being infused in the military? Those are real and present dangers, not these false flags that are being perpetuated. Wow. And, you know, it, it's interesting you brought up the idea about re-upping. I worry about that. Just as a general flyover, Bill, last question in an hour that's gone far too quickly. You know, you got to recruit. We don't have conscription. People voluntarily decide that they're going to sign up. 
education benefits, yes. Something, something greater than themselves, yes, for a myriad of reasons. With all of the stuff that's going on in the military, where are they with their recruiting and their re-upping numbers? It's very, very dire. They're, they're losing people. They can't meet their recruiting goals. And the reason is simple. Uh, a, a group of 185 generals and admirals wrote a letter to Congress that said, you've got to get rid of diversity, equity, inclusion. They tried to do it in the recent National Defense Authorization Act, but were unsuccessful. And so there's still a fight going on to try and remove DEI from the Pentagon. Wow. Bill, thank you. That was a superb conversation, and we had so many more stories we could still have discussed. So I'm going to draw my friends to the information page. First of all, there's Deceiving the Sky. Click on through to learn how you can get your copy. Remember, there are many more books besides that one. He's written eight, and four of them are national bestsellers. Also, I have a link underneath to the Washington Times so that you can connect and read his pieces at GertzFile.com, GertzFile.com. Bill, thank you for an excellent conversation. And we'll see you next time, friends, on In the Market with Janet Parshall.